from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, the real story of church and state. Host Leith Anderson, NAE president, talks with Carl Esbeck, professor emeritus of law at the University of Missouri. Today's conversation is brought to you by National Marriage Week USA. Want a great way to grow your church? Plan ahead to celebrate National Marriage Week during the week of February 7th to 14th. Reaching out to serve marriages in your community can bring new couples and families your way. Get a toolkit and ideas at nationalmarriageweekusa.org. And now, let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, here with Professor Carl Esbeck. Carl joined the University of Missouri faculty in 1981 after serving as a partner in a law firm in Albuquerque, New Mexico for several years. Professor Esbeck uh, taught classes on a whole range of topics, civil procedure, constitutional law, religious liberty, civil rights, and others. Then while on leave from the university from 1999 to 2002, he directed the Center for Law and Religious Freedom, where he was a central part of the congressional advocacy behind the Religious Land Use and Institutional Persons Act of the year 2000. Also during his leave, he served as senior counsel to the Deputy Attorney General at the U.S. Department of Justice. Carl has published widely in the area of religious liberty and church-state relations, including a new book, and the title is Disestablishment and Religious Dissent, Church-State Relations in the New American States, 1776 to 1833. And since 2002, Carl has served as the NAE's legal counsel. So thank you for joining us today and for all the work that you have done with us at NAE. Well, I appreciate the invitation. So let's start out before we really get to our our topic about the history and uh, disestablishment and all that. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with the significant role that you play as legal counsel to the NAE. So could you talk a little about that? Could you also specifically mention um, amicus briefs and what they are and then how that works? Well, sure. My my role is really uh, twofold. It's to comment on the First Amendment religious liberty implications of proposed legislation and regulation. And the other part is what you mentioned, uh, amicus curiae briefs, or translated that simply means friend of the court briefs. And um, at the appellate level, courts don't just follow precedent, but they're making policy. And so these amicus briefs are a chance for NAE to comment on how the courts should uh, resolve those policy questions and also criticize uh, people on the other side and, and their particular arguments. All right. Over the years, you've done all kinds of research in the area of religious freedom and church-state relations. It seems to me that there are a lot of people who just sort of think they know about what American history is and have this conventional wisdom about how it all started out. And, and sometimes they're just not right. They either don't know what they're talking about or they've been misinformed. So what's some of the conventional wisdom that actually isn't true? Well, uh, two things. Uh come to mind and are particularly prominent. Uh, One is the belief that the story of religious liberty in America is basically a federal law story. And 
it's sort of centered on the First Amendment and our Constitution. And uh, the truth is really quite the opposite. The story of religious liberty is a state law story. Uh, the states are where the established churches were. The federal government never had an established religion, so there was never a federal disestablishment. But 11 of the original 13 colonies did have established churches. And so that's where the real activity took place over about a 50-year period. The, the second sort of uh, belief that's out there that's a, a myth, and that is that religious people, uh, they wanted religious liberty for themselves, but not for others. And, um, but uh, they they had to concede religious liberty to others in order to get it for themselves because that's the only way they had a majority. Uh, in the original uh, 17th century colonialists, that, that was true. Uh, many of the colonialists came here and, and did want religious liberty for themselves but not others. But by the founding period, the founding of the republic, the uh, American Revolution and going forward, that had completely changed and, and religious people were pursuing religious liberty for all religious people. You say 11 of the original 13 colonies had established religions like a state church, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the the only two states that didn't have established churches was Pennsylvania, uh, but in Pennsylvania, the Quakers dominated. So a, a lot of the religious or a lot of the laws uh, favored uh, the Quaker point of view. And then Rhode Island, little Rhode Island uh, also was unique in not having an establishment. But even in Rhode Island, there were numerous uh, disabilities on religion. For example, they taxed religion. So, so uh, all 13 states have uh, a unique story. And most of those were imported from Europe? Uh, yes, uh, and mostly from England. Uh, in New England, uh, of course, you had the Puritans and they established uh, what they called the Congregational Church. Their polity was majority rule at the local level. And then the Church of England uh, in the middle states and the southern states. So, yeah, they all came from uh, England. All right, so let's talk about your new book. It offers a state-by-state -state account over a 55-year period, and you have different chapters written by different authors. So you didn't write all this yourself. Um, so who were these authors? I don't mean each of their names. I mean, are they like professors or historians or theologians or who are these people? And then yeah. why did you pick those years? I, under, I get the 1776, but 1776 to 1833, 55 years. Why did you pick that time period? Yeah, the time period, 1776, of course, is when the colonies first declared themselves uh, sovereign states one by one. And so they wrote a constitution. And as they wrote the constitution, they had to deal with church-state relations. And so most all of them had a state church. And so they had to deal with that. So that began the process of disestablishment. We end it with 1833 because that was the last establishment, which was in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So about a 55-year period, quite a long 
long period. It didn't just happen very quickly uh, during the revolution and shortly thereafter. Uh, we have 21 different chapters. So each chapter is assigned to a, a different state. So you can see we cover a lot more than just the original 13 states. And uh, just by way of example, some of our authors, uh, your listeners might know of Dr. David Little. He was at the Harvard Divinity School, and uh, he's now at Georgetown University and a think tank there. Uh, Dr. John Fee, uh, professor of history at Messiah College there in Pennsylvania, has authored five or six uh, books with a, uh, a Christian publishing house, so you may recognize that name. Um, professor John Witte, a professor of uh, law, uh, well-known at Emory University in Atlanta. He's director of the Center of Law and Religion there at Emory. So that's sort of an, an inkling, if you will, of, of the people that we picked. Uh, they're either professional academic historians, but there are also a few of them are political scientists with an emphasis on history, uh, law professors with an emphasis on legal history, or we have a couple of theologians, but again, with an interest in history. That's the common thread. They're, they're historians by uh, their academic backgrounds. All right, you said something that just sort of triggered another thought for me. So you said that the last establishment or established, church established in a state was in 1833 in Massachusetts. So that means that after the U.S. Constitution was in force for a long time, there were still states that had state churches, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Constitution was written in 1787, ratified 1789. So, yeah, for 50 years thereafter, uh, there were established churches. Yeah. Again, that's part of that original myth that people think, oh, uh, church-state relations, that's federal law. Just the opposite is true. It's state law, but state by state, with each state being fairly unique to that particular locality. All right. Well, let's talk about that unique. So are there some general similarities among how the states handled all of this, or is each one absolutely a separate path to whatever destination they went to? Uh, well, um, a little bit of both. Uh, you have to start with each one being quite unique. So, for example, one of our findings that was a bit of a surprise was that while each state disestablishment uh, was unique, no particular state disestablishment was a model or leader uh, or an example for others. We would have thought that states would have looked to what was going on in other states. They pretty much did not. And so uh, the, the 20th century jurisprudence was to elevate uh, the disestablishment in Virginia as uh, over all others or as more important than others. And the evidence that we have is just the opposite, that no particular disestablishment uh, stood out over others. And uh, so uh, one, of the, one of the things as we uh, got into this was that um, uh, we, we, we looked at the First Amendment to see where 
states that disestablished after the First Amendment uh, became part of our Bill of Rights, uh, if, if that would be looked to as sort of a model, and again, we found no disestablishment that looked to the First Amendment or to the Constitution uh, as, a, as a body. Uh, again, each state was pretty much doing their own thing. Then uh, yet another finding that we had was uh, the, you know, obviously these disestablishments were a political struggle. And what disestablishment is, it, you start with your establishment, which is basically a regulation of the church. So disestablishment is repealing that regulation. And the the body or the the group of people who were remonstrating in favor of disestablishment, repealing these laws, they were doing so out of their religious understanding of what was good for the church. Uh, there were a few prominent statesmen who were driven by other motives, basically enlightenment thinking. But the vast majority of Americans, and of course we're dealing with a, a Republican process here, so the majority really matters. The vast majority of the people remonstrating for repealing these regulations of the church were doing so for religious reasons. And their reasons were this is what they thought was better for the church. So that was a bit of a surprise. I am trying to... Um imagine being in a church but i mean how does that work when you're getting tax money and state money and then one day you don't get it anymore and now you've got to take bigger offerings or have somebody else pay for your building what how did that actually work and and what was when you talk about establishment laws what are examples taxation would be one of them i assume but are there others yeah let me Take up. You got two questions. Let me take up, and they're both good. Let me take up the first question first. When disestablishment happened, the formerly established church suffered greatly, both in numbers and in resources. So the Church of England, which became the Episcopal Protestant Church of America after the Revolution, uh, it greatly declined in numbers, and they lost uh, a lot of their property and had to consolidate and close a lot of churches. Same sort of thing happened uh, up in New England, where the Congregational Church uh, was the formerly established church. There was another phenomena where some of those Congregational Churches, because they were majority rule, a Congregational polity, they were becoming Unitarian. So they were actually changing the nature of their religion based upon a, a vote of the congregation. That wouldn't have happened under an established church because the state wouldn't have let it happen. But under a disestablished church, uh, you know, the congregants controlled and they, uh, they often favored uh, Unitarianism. The, the, so, so the second question there is... Um, what what exactly did a an established church <laughs> look like? And you're right. First and foremost, it meant that state support, um, state uh, there were state taxes which went to pay the salaries of ministers. But
but the government also transferred land to the church, which were called glebes. And uh, glebes were then property, vacant property that were rented out for agricultural use and the rent went to the support of the church. The other aspects of, of uh, establishment, well, the state controlled doctrine. Uh, they had a statement of faith, which was adopted by the government. And they had an order of worship or liturgy, which was adopted by the government, and the church had to conform to it. And the, the state made all clerical appointments. So they controlled who the clergy was and thereby exercised substantial control over the church. Uh, they required, or early on, uh, they required mandatory attendance of everybody at the state church. Of course, there was widespread uh, 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 civil disobedience against that. So then the state uh, somewhat by legislation said, well, we're going to tolerate some of these dissenters and we're going to call them nonconformists. And so you can attend a uh, a nonconforming church, but we're going to license that church and you can only attend a nonconforming church that is licensed by the state. Uh, only the the state clergy could marry people, could bury people. Uh, the state church kept records of birth and death and things of that sort. The state church controlled uh, that there, there were monies that were designated for the poor and widows, but the state church uh, controlled how those monies were dispersed. And uh, something that uh, even made it into our federal constitution is the state would impose religious tests. So you had to you had to be a member of the state church in order to vote or to run for public office. Do we still have residue of some of these today? I'm I'm thinking like the clergy housing allowance or clergy that are registered with many states in order to officiate at weddings. The churches are tax exempt. Do they all grow out of that era? Uh, you have to take each one of those a little bit separately. Uh, tax exemption goes all the way back to the Justinian Code, which is the, the Roman Code. They were the first to actually codify all their laws or write them down in an orderly fashion. And even then, uh, religious bodies were tax exempt. So that was carried forward through the English law and, and then the American colonial law. So... So that has a much longer lineage. Uh, licensing, I think modern day licensing for uh, marrying, for example, marrying people, that uh, that somewhat grew out of ecclesiastical law. The Church of England in the 15th, 16th century had in its jurisdiction marriage. And so if you wanted to go through a divorce, you had to go to the church in order to get a divorce and so on. And of course, divorces were almost never granted. But uh, And in order to get married, you had to go to the church. So in that sense, here in the American colonies, like if you were not Church of England, but in Virginia, you had to go to an Anglican clergy person in order to get married, even though you were Baptist. So yes, in that sense, uh, that sort of modern day 
heritage is still with us. All right, a question that I should know the answer to and I have no idea. Is the United States the first to do this? Because many European countries still have established churches. Um, had any country ever had the level of religious freedom that the United States was embarking on in its early century? Uh, America is unique. Uh, in fact, it's disestablishment uh, of religion is America's only contribution to political philosophy. Uh, America was the first to try items of political philosophy, but they had their origin in Europe, like separation of powers. But uh, disestablishment of religion is unique to America. It was thought up here and first practiced here. And with just cause, by half we can say that Americans strength in religion, even to this day, even though we're a modern industrial nation, unlike Europe, uh, is because we disestablished. Because after we disestablished here in the States, uh, religion exploded and became very strong. Uh, whereas in Europe, where they continued with established churches, uh, indeed, establishment was bad for religion, and uh, and religion declined. It all gives a fresh perspective on the often used expression about the American experiment, that uh, this was a major contributing factor to the American experiment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. A question that I should have asked you at the very beginning to just sort of define terms. Um, so your new book is uh, using words like disestablishment and religious dissent, and uh, I, I think you've sort of covered most of this, but let, let's get some definition of terms. What, what do these words actually mean? Well, dissenters or religious dissenters, uh, that's what they were called by the state church, and they sort of wore that term with pride. So the religious dissenters uh, from essentially the American Revolution through the first third of the 19th century, they were Presbyterians, Baptists, and what they called New Side Reformed or Calvinist um, uh, persuasion. Uh, new Side is distinct from Old Side. <laughs> so there were Reformed that were uh, kept older traditional ways. Uh, but at the time, uh, when they were called other than dissenters, they were called religious enthusiasts or revivalists or nonconformists. So those were the people remonstrating together for uh, disestablishment. And they were over against uh, Church of England or Anglicans and Congregationalists or the old Puritan church. So that, that was the struggle. All right, all that you have mentioned are uh, Christian traditions, Christian denominations. But from the beginning of our country, there were Jews, there were some Muslims, there certainly were Native American religious traditions. Um, were they considering these or were they just considered outliers? They were considered outliers. Um, there, if there were Muslims, 
they they simply didn't register uh, with the documents that historians can go to now. There were small Jewish communities, interestingly enough, coming to North America from South America as a result of disruptions down there. Um, so they were coming up here looking for new homes. By and large, they were welcomed, they were tolerated, but uh, and and they could become citizens, but they had uh, very little political power, and so largely didn't register in this uh, struggle for religious liberty. Uh, the the real uh, struggle, if you will, and it was still fairly small, was between Protestants and Catholics. There were a relatively small number of Catholics uh, in the British colonies along the Atlantic seaboard, probably under 5%, so very, very small. And half of those, maybe more than half, were in the state of Maryland because Maryland was unique in that it was established by a Catholic having the goal of a colony where Catholics and Protestants could live together in harmony. So to the extent that there was any political power in Catholics, it was in Maryland. But by the time of the revolution, uh, Catholics were even a minority in Maryland, perhaps making up a third of the population. And the Catholic tradition back then, they didn't have any tradition of religious liberty. So for the most part, they were just trying to make their way as Catholics in a land where they were a minority and very much an outpost for the Roman Catholic Church. They had no bishop, for example, not until after the revolution was finished was there even a Catholic bishop in America. So they, for the most part, to the extent that they registered in the politics of Maryland, it was to have a religious test which included all Christians and therefore Catholics. When we think about states uh, that had established churches, 11 of the 13 original colonies, and how all this happened in states, today we think of this, most of us would think of this as largely federal policy because of the U.S. Constitution. In the process of change, were there events or times when the federal government stepped in and told the states what to do in this evolving process of disestablishment? Um, for the most part, no, with the exception of Native Americans, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, by constitution, uh, relations with Native American nations or tribes was a federal matter. And so the interaction there with Native Americans was entirely federal. And interestingly enough, and this seems very contrary to having a First Amendment with an Establishment Clause, that the, the federal policy back then was largely to pacify and to deal with the expanding frontier, the Europeans' desire for more and more land as they moved west, and that meant a re you know dealing with the Native American claims to this land. And so 
what the federal approach to Native American religions was to employ uh, Christian clergy to Christianize the Native Americans, which was somewhat successful with some tribes, very successful, like with the Cherokees in Georgia. Uh, and, and in other cases, it wasn't successful at all, and the Native Americans resisted uh, Christianity much as they resisted all other sort of uh, European cultural uh, beachheads. I have a next to last question. My last question is going to be, what else do you want us to know? But my next to last question, in some ways is sort of the culmination of all this, and that is how does this early American history and these trends, which amaze me that they came to somewhat similar conclusions, well, how does all this relate to today, to the 21st century and our current context? Uh, well, there, there's a very strong movement. It might even be characterized as a majority movement within the federal judiciary uh, with dissenters to be sure, but a majority movement within the federal judiciary, which has the final word on interpreting the First Amendment, to interpret the Establishment Clause by looking to historical practices and understandings as America moved from established churches to disestablishment, again, this 55-year period. So that means looking at two different histories, both of which speak to what was an establishment and what it means to be a nation where there is no establishment. And uh, so, so there's the history that's in this particular book that we've been talking about, the history of each state and how it went from an established church to a disestablishment and why they did that, uh, their religious motives and their secular motives and so on. And then the other history, which this book is not at all about, but it's a history of the federal law, how, how um, the Establishment Clause came about, was drafted by the first Congress in uh, 1789, and it was sent to the states. It had to be ratified by three quarters of the states, so it was debated by the state legislatures, eventually ratified. So we have that history. What, when the first Congress wrote the Establishment Clause, what did they think it meant? When the states ratified it, what did they think they were ratifying? And then, uh, that became the law of the land. So then the, how was the Establishment Clause actually used by Congress and by the executive branch? What did they think it meant uh, for the period of what we call the New Republic, which is a period that, that goes up to um, probably through the 1830s, which was sort of the new nation. We were just getting our legs as a federalistic, constitutional republic. And so they were interpreting and applying the Establishment Clause for the first time. So the, the, so the courts are going to look to those two bodies of history and, uh, and say, well, that's what the Establishment Clause means, and then apply it to contemporary issues. 
All right, my last question. This has been touching the surface of just a fascinating and significant topic. So what, what else do we need to know? What, what have we skipped over? What do you want to add? <laughs> well, um, we, w one of the things that leads to a lot of interesting surprises, which of course is what historians like and those people who are interested in reading history uh, like to read about is we also looked at the disestablishment, not just in the original 13, but in other interesting places. So for example, uh, Ohio. Ohio was the first state carved out of the Northwest Territory. We acquired the Northwest Territory in our peace treaty with England solving the or resolving the, the revolution. So we acquired this huge body of land and Ohio was the first state. Well, out of uh, Ohio um, at its uh, original founding created a number of glebes and those glebes then produced agricultural rents. In other words, farmers rented, paid rent to, to farm the land. And it went into the hands of churches and Protestant churches. Uh, and not all Protestant churches would participate. For example, Methodists said, no, no, we, we don't want any part of that government money. That's <laughs> corrupting. But a number of Protestant churches did participate in taking those rents for their support. And that continued until mid 20th century. They didn't, Ohio didn't do away with that until the 1950s. And that's just a really interesting process. Um, the, there were, we, we cover three disestablishments that were the Catholic church. So, for example, the two states that were first carved out of the Louisiana Purchase, so Louisiana Purchase 1803, well, the first state, of course, to be carved out of that was Louisiana. The second state was Missouri. Both of them had French Catholic establishments. And as soon as uh, Napoleon and Jefferson, on behalf of the United States, uh, transferred that large body of land that we know of as the Louisiana Purchase, which of course includes where you're at right now, Minnesota, and includes where I'm at here in Missouri. Um, those were Catholic establishments. And with the snap of a finger overnight, those churches lost their state support. So all those Catholic priests, which were paid by the government, the next day, they're unpaid. And there were, it was, of course, a huge setback for the Catholic Church, such as it was uh, in, in those uh, areas. And then there were also in Spain, or the, the, the Spain held Florida. And uh, in the 1820s, in a treaty with Spain, uh, Florida became part of the United States. And again, as soon as that treaty was effective, the Catholic Church, which had been in existence in Florida for 120 years, suddenly was disestablished. And, uh, you know, to a, a great uh, decline of the Catholic Church uh, for a couple of decades until they got their feet under them again, uh, under the, the new arrangement of no establishment. Our guest on today's conversation has been Carl Esbeck, Professor Emeritus of Law at the University of Missouri. 
and his book, fascinating material, it's so interesting. The title, Disestablishment and Religious Dissent, Church-State Relations in the New American State, 1776 to 1833. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, a very special thanks to Carl. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.